Hey listeners, on May 13th, we invite you to join us and Reed Hoffman for a new virtual strategy session presented in alliance with Capital One Business. You'll hear insights from fellow entrepreneurs about how to be at the forefront of leading change with AI. So go to mastersofscale.com AI strategy right now to register for free. Again, that's mastersofscale.com AI strategy. Looking forward to seeing you there. Previously on Masters of Scale. I'm about to change roles. For this two-part episode, I'll answer the questions, and my good friend, June Cohen, will ask them. What did you learn about human motivation playing Dungeons and Dragons? I did learn that people wanted to be the hero of their own story, that that was a fundamental kind of human drive across almost everybody. Reed felt ready to launch his first startup, SocialNet. The theory of human nature is that we're social animals. What gives people the most fabric and meaning and joy and kind of presence in life is other people. When SocialNet folded, Reed already had the idea that would become LinkedIn. Reed took his fledgling idea to Peter Thiel. He was like, no, you shouldn't start another company yet. And I was like, really? Well, I think I should. He's like, no, no, you should come join PayPal. What was the biggest fire you put out at PayPal? And what was the biggest fire you let burn? I had to solve all of them. Otherwise, the value of PayPal zero, like, you know, roadkill, out of business. Will Reed save PayPal from its demise? Will he realize his vision of a more connected world? Find out now on Masters of Scale, the Reed Hoffman story. Part two. When we last left Reed, he was at PayPal. And PayPal has become something of a legend in Silicon Valley, partially because of its incredible cast of characters. Peter Thiel, Elon Musk, Max Levchin, Luke Nosek, and of course, Reed Hoffman. Each of them would go on to define their own hero's path after PayPal, cementing PayPal's place in history. In fact, it brings to mind another legendary group. The Beatles. Hear me out. Like the Beatles, the core team behind PayPal. I'm Reed. I'm Elon. I'm Peter. I'm Max. I'm Luke. Why does everyone leave me out? There were five of us, you know. Would go on to transform the world. Okay, so maybe the PayPal team lacked the throngs of screaming groupies. But like the Fab Four, they were crazy geniuses each of them a hero on their own creative journey, leading fans and commentators to later ask, whose genius made the group what it was? Or was it the group that made them geniuses? And it just seemed so unlikely that they would have found each other at all. They also went through distinct phases. The idealism of their early days when they first banded together, to the middle period where they combined all of their strengths to make something the world had never seen. And eventually, the later period, where the cracks started to show. Our group of strong-willed heroes had achieved all they could together and parted ways before stuff got too weird. During his heyday at PayPal, Reed says this team of heroes were united toward a common goal. We were willing to be really bold. We were willing to take risks. We didn't kind of like panic about our careers if, oh gosh, this thing blows up and doesn't work. So you got a lot of people who had that level of similarity, all willing to work together, despite the fact they had enormous political differences, what the mission of the company was. But while you may picture yourself on a boat on a river, before long, you'll hit the rapids. Reed was working every day, eight days a week, to keep the PayPal team pointing in the same direction. They were united for a time toward a common mission. PayPal was helping all of them be heroes in this chapter of their own stories. But the later chapters had very different endings. They all had different ways of thinking, different goals. So there was a friction between them. And it would crop up at the strangest of times. 
it was late one night, like 10 p.m. You know, we were all working super hard. I was heading home, might have even been 11. And Peter said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? And I was like, sure. Now, Reed and Peter actually had a short-lived public access talk show together where they would argue their views in front of bemused guests and audiences. So Reed was used to strange interactions with Peter. It was part of the bedrock of their friendship. So Reed braced himself. He's like, well, you know, Reed, I don't really know why you work here. And I'm like, okay, I'm curious. Give me the next three sentences. And he's like, well, but you know what our real plan is, our secret plan. And I was like, no, I'm still lost. Another three sentences. And he says, well, you know that the last thing that's propping up nation-state governments is their control over currencies. And that PayPal becomes a private company that can essentially break that free. Imagine here Reed rolling his eyes as Peter launches into another of his famous diatribes. And we have these T-shirts printed, the New World Global Currency. We have these T-shirts printed, and this is the real mission, and you don't believe in that mission, and you're working here. So I was curious about that. And I said, okay, Peter, you and I were both in the meeting where we decided that we were going to be in dollars, not in PayPalians, right? Not in beans, not in flus, but in U.S. dollars. So I'm working at a master merchant. The real question is, what company are you working at? And you should think about that a little bit. And I'm going home. It's late. I love this insight into the dynamic between Peter and Reed. All that passion, which could so easily cause them to fly apart like an unstable radioactive atom, is instead binding them together, letting them harness all that energy for the mission they all believe in. Of course, once they achieve that mission, they are likely to go flying apart. But that's okay. I believe that to chart a truly epic journey to scale, you need to make everyone you enlist a hero, not just in your story, but in their own. You've got to have incredible talent at every position. It's like this huge push. There are fires burning when you're going home. Can you believe it? Such an idiot. And then you go back to, this is totally going to be amazing. There are so many easy ways. I have no idea what to do. Sorry, we made a mistake. But you have to time it right. Oops. Working out of a three-bedroom apartment. Stuff that just seems absolutely nutballs. Ten years later, I'm like, well, that's just how you do it. We haven't made just how you do it. This is Masters of Scale. We'll start the show in a moment. Afterward, from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm June Cohen, executive producer of Masters of Scale, CEO of Wait What, the company behind it, former head of media at TED, and just for this special two-part episode, your host. And I believe that to chart a truly epic journey to scale, you need to make everyone you enlist a hero, not just in your story, but in their own. This idea of making others a hero is at the heart of every movie you've ever loved. But somehow, when it comes to our work lives, we lose the plot. Think about The Wizard of Oz. Dorothy has to make it to the Emerald City. 
in order to meet the wizard and find her way home. She recruits a team, the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, the Lion, to travel the yellow brick road with her. But each was really looking to become a hero in their own story. If the Scarecrow didn't have a chance of getting a brain and the Tin Man couldn't get a heart, they wouldn't have braved those attacks from flying monkeys. They would have warmly wished Dorothy the best of luck as they waved her on her way from the safety of Munchkinland. And it's the same for you. If you want your collaborators and customers to really go the distance with you, you have to ask, how can I make each of them a hero in their story and not just mine? I wanted to talk to Reed about this theory because he has a language around herodom and a set of practices which come up again and again on Masters of Scale. In part one of this episode, we heard the origin stories behind Reed's ideas on herodom and some of his foundational beliefs, like the concept of tours of duty. In part two, Reed puts those ideas into practice through LinkedIn, through investing at Greylock, and through his most recent book, Blitzscaling, which, like this podcast, gives everyone the tools to scale a company or idea. We'll build the theory as Reed builds his career. When we left Reed, he was PayPal's chief firefighter, and there were flames all around him. A heart-stopping $10 million a month burn rate, 10,000 customer support emails unanswered each week. As a quick refresher, PayPal was an independent payment system, but their users were all on eBay. And eBay had purchased a different payment system, which, of course, eBay preferred to use. It didn't look good. eBay was pretty certain for years that PayPal, as a separate entity, was a big risk factor for them. And so they looked at PayPal as kind of like the wild, wild west. No law and order, no sheriffs in town, these untrustworthy, scruffy sorts of people. You have to understand, eBay leaders saw themselves as the kinds of heroes who ran a tight ship. These PayPal pirates felt like a real threat to eBay's idea of herodom. Our real first goal was just simply persuading them that it was okay to leave running. It was a full court press across the entire field to try to keep eBay on board with PayPal growing and thriving on the eBay marketplace. Reed fed eBay a constant stream of alternate storylines by which eBay could emerge a hero with PayPal's help. Hey, you should allow for innovation. This is quintessential American, and there's all these sellers and buyers across the country who really depend on this alternative payment service that isn't bundled with your monopoly market service. Reed also warned eBay about the dangers of crossing PayPal. Making sure that they understood that there would be a huge cost to trying to shut us down. Making sure that PayPal customers were being very public and vocal about how much they love the service. Ultimately, this customer love is what saved PayPal. eBay's customers' overwhelming preference for PayPal made it diplomatically difficult for eBay to oust them. But how did PayPal actually win over eBay customers? In this case, it didn't involve making anyone a hero. No, sometimes fortune favors the fast. Our whole trick to dominating that platform was to be faster than the eBay technology. The eBay technology determined the auction winner and then sent an email. And here's the crazy tiny detail that allowed PayPal to win. So you would frequently get a notification from PayPal, like 80, 90% of the time, that you had won the auction before eBay had notified you that you had won the auction. Because it's like, oh, you've won the auction. Here, you can pay with PayPal. So eBay customers use PayPal because PayPal's emails arrive first. You just never know which small tactic will let you emerge the hero. As you may already know, Reed's story at PayPal ends well eBay buys PayPal for $1.5 billion, and Reed has what you might call a freedom fund that will make it possible to launch his long-delayed second startup. But the timing isn't great. This is fall of 2002, when the deal closes, and the Silicon Valley intelligentsia, everyone has concluded that the internet trend has played out. Like every other technological trend, which had been semiconductors and enterprise software and networking equipment. There's some winners. Then you move on to the next trend. 
Investors assumed that the web was dead, but Reed saw it differently. And what I had realized was that the internet was just starting. It's going to transform how we live our lives, how we work, how we buy stuff. All that was actually still in its infancy. Reed now had a movie playing in his head. In that movie, the biggest wins of the internet age were still ahead. Some of them would come from social networks anchored in your real identity. And Reed would be among the heroes who would help create this new world. Now he was considering which kind of hero he wanted to be. What I was interested in was playing out this new rebirth of the internet, both as an investor and as an entrepreneur. And I didn't know if I'd be a good investor or not. I was like, I'm doing some investing to see if that's what I understand. And I'm doing some entrepreneurship to see if that's the thing I would do. And so I wanted to kind of place a set of bets. So what was the first bet that Reed placed? The first pure angel investment was Friendster. Friendster. Of course Reed's first investment was Friendster. If you were writing a movie about a character named Reed Hoffman, you would have his first angel investment be in Friendster. Here's why. Friendster was the first of the modern social networks. It was everyone has a real identity. Everyone connects with other people whose names and pictures they see. I'm a huge believer in real identity, real relationships, and as a platform for applications about how you navigate your life. And so that made Friendster very easy. It was easy for Reed to invest in Friendster, and not just because it had the potential of great returns. Reed invested because Friendster was building the kind of social network Reed believed in. Friendster's success would make Reed a hero in his own story. And this is such an important lesson for anyone seeking investors. Don't just look for money. Look for people whose personal mission will be advanced by your success. People who will see themselves as a hero in their own story if you succeed. My co-founder Darren and I followed this advice when we were fundraising for the startup behind Masters of Scale. We believe deeply in the strategic advantage of diversity and gender balance. And some of you might remember that Masters of Scale was the first American media property to commit to a 50-50 gender balance in our guests. We wanted gender-balanced investors in our company as well, so we decided to raise money from women first. Now, this led to hilarious conversations like, um, sorry, we're just not taking money from men yet. But it worked. It created gender balance while also giving investors who champion diversity, and all of ours do, another reason to feel like heroes in their own story. Reed continued his hero's journey with each of his investments. Friendster, Flickr, Facebook, Groupon. Each startup helped build this world that Reed had imagined, in which our personal networks intersect with our online lives. Each startup made him a hero in his own story. But Reed had another story to write. With his angel investments just taking shape, Reed set out to launch his own second startup one that would build on his long-standing theory of human nature. I love the way Reed expressed this theory in part one of this episode. So let's reprise it here. What gives people the most fabric and meaning and joy and kind of presence in life is other people. The theory of human nature is that we're social animals, that while they're introverts and extroverts and while there's some people who really like being hermits, Actually, in fact, the vast majority of human race finds themselves getting meaning and joy and satisfaction and evolution on the people you're connected to. With this theory in mind, Reed set out to launch LinkedIn in 2002. He knew he would build a platform that leverages the connections between people to change lives for the better. And he was looking for a big idea. And of all of the ways people might connect online, work felt the most urgent. The thesis was clear to him. Our real identities, our real networks will become the platform by which we greatly enhance how we find opportunities and how we work. It most naturally starts when people are thinking about job searching, because when they're job searching, they're motivated enough that they'll try something new. Reed understood that for people to try something new, they need strong motivation. And that motivation often springs from the desire to emerge a hero in their own story. Job searching was one powerful source of that motivation. But while Reed was clear on LinkedIn's role, potential users found it a bit foggy. 
people were literally like, I have no idea what you're talking about. People were also ambivalent about the idea of networking. Like, is this a service for people who intrinsically like networking? Because we all kind of know networking is important for our careers, but it's like flossing. Most of us really don't like doing it. And everyone seemed to think it was a great idea for someone else. We talk to young people and they say, oh, yeah, that could be a valuable service, but for experienced professionals. And then you talk to experienced professionals and say, oh, that could be a good service, but that would be for young people, <laughs> right? You talk to technologists and they say, yeah, that would be a good service for the traditional industries trying to figure out new tech, but not for me. You talk to the old industries and they'd say, oh, that would be a good service, but that's for the newfangled tech industries, not for us. It's not for us. One of the many polite rejection cards you get handed when the world can't see how your idea would help them or anyone become a hero. Like every entrepreneur, Reed had to decide how to act on the lukewarm responses to LinkedIn. Should he fold his hand or play it? So we knew that we had a range of this kind of neutral to negative reactions. We said, look, do we have deep conviction that as we get through this, we will build an essentially valuable service to the vast majority of people, and that as they see it in action, their views will convert? Reed had the conviction. He went all in to build the service where everyone could share their professional details and build their professional networks. But how would he get his very first users? Now, you might be thinking, wouldn't it be easy for Reed Hoffman to get users? He's a Stanford grad, an angel investor. His PayPal cohort alone was reshaping Silicon Valley. Couldn't he just call his friends? I asked Reed how he got LinkedIn's first users. Did you reach out to a number of super connectors in your network to participate? And how did you persuade them? So we did that, mostly me, because I was the person who most knew other super connectors. But that turned out to not be as... Reed sighed as he considered just how to express the fact that his friends weren't all that helpful. One of the people who was most useful to us was another guest of Masters of Scale, Joey Ito. Joey Ito is now the director of the MIT Media Lab. He's known, among other things, for his passion around radically open systems. Like Joey's mission was blogging. He wanted it to be an open world of everyone blogging and everyone sharing opinion together where all of that information was available to anyone. LinkedIn wasn't quite open enough for Joey. But for Reed's sake, he gave it a shot. Joey's like, OK, that's, I'm interested and curious enough that I'll help you do it. And so Joey would invite a whole bunch of people. But then Joey was like, OK, I've invited a whole bunch of people. I played with it some. I'm bored. I'm now moving on. This happened more than once with Reed's friends. If they were friends of mine, they went, OK, this curious... I'm motivated enough to try it, but this isn't how I think the world should operate. It's not to say I'm anti it. I just, this isn't my mission. This isn't my mission. The words that stopped a thousand projects dead in their tracks. And that's the problem with relying on friends and family. Friends will do you a favor. Friends will show up. But if you're going to persuade friends and family to play more than a fleeting role in building your business, you have to make sure that role turns each of them into a hero in their own story. And this is where I wanted to test the theory with Ariana Huffington. I believe Ariana is the undisputed master of this particular hero-making art. Before she became CEO of Thrive Global, Ariana launched the Huffington Post, and she had uncanny success getting people who matter to write about what mattered to them. It started from the very beginning. Huffington Post, the first person I asked to participate was Arthur Schlesinger. Arthur Schlesinger was, of course, the Pulitzer Prize-winning, Kennedy family-chronicling, liberal world-hobnobbing historian and thinker. He was someone who mattered. He was also 87 years old. First of all, he asked me, I called him up, and he said, what's blogging? That was 2005, okay? And I started explaining what blogging is. And he said, you know what, why don't you come to lunch at the Century Club and explain it to me? The Century Club is exactly where an 87-year-old liberal historian would take someone whose ideas bemused him. So he took me to lunch at this very staid club. His later work to be notably derivative of the Expressionist And era. there I was <laughs> explaining blogging. And he said, OK, I get it. So if I have some idea or something happens and I want to respond, I'll fax it to you. 
there were some purists who said, well, if he faxes it to you, that's not blogging. And I said, as far as I'm concerned, he can send it by carrier pigeon. Notice Ariana's stance here. She knows that even when she's making someone else a hero in their own story, she still has to make it easy for them. And that might mean receiving blog posts by fax. In June of that year, Arthur faxed Ariana his first blog post titled, What in God's Name is Going On at the Air Force Academy? It was a fiery indictment of religious harassment in the military and a chapter in the historian's own story of herodom. This was a formula Ariana would use again and again. The Huffington Post became an engine driven by other people's passions. And her new venture, Thrive Global, operates on the same principle. I've wanted for years to know Ariana's secret techniques. How does she persuade people to participate? I think it's always a question of what are you giving back? When I left the Huffington Post, we had 100,000 contributors. And what they got is distribution. It's the same principle here at Thrive. And the message here is we don't care about exclusivity. You take out rights. They own the rights. They can do anything they want with it. And what you give them is the fact that we have 30 million users cross-platform. It's an easy ask. It's an easy ask because Ariana isn't just taking something. She's giving each contributor a chapter in their story of herodom. For me, the bottom line is, are we adding value as well as getting value? Reed was also creating a platform that would add value as well as getting value with each new user. But growth was still slow. So while LinkedIn began as a closed network requiring an invitation, Reed soon realized he had to open it up. This was one of the things we hotly debated in the beginning. Should we only allow you to come into LinkedIn by referral and by connection? So it's just we start with the 13 employees. We send out a bunch of connections. Those people send out other connections. And we do that. And the reason we decided to allow anyone to sign up and then send connections is we wanted the fastest possible path to the set of people who are like, I believe in this network. I believe the network could be valuable. So I'll sign up and then I'll invite a whole bunch of people. So it seems like those very first important adopters were those who not only wanted to expand their own network, but to actively campaign for the idea of networks in the world. Was there a way that you found that first set or did they find you? We couldn't find them very easily. You couldn't target them. So you just did press. We had a very media-heavy strategy at the beginning. That gave us the critical mass to build that network on top of it. LinkedIn got to critical mass by opening up their signups. But they also innovated relentlessly on the techniques that would engage and re-engage users based on social interactions. Among their innovations was the now common practice of showing new users the people in their own network who were already on the site. When people arrive at a social network, the majority of people, the first question is, who else is here? Is this a place for me? And how do you know it's a place for me? Or other people that are like me, are they here? It's a little bit like you kind of walk into a party and you look around, and if you're a goth person and everyone is preppy, you're like, oh, I'm in the wrong place. (laughs) I'm going to turn around and leave. When people arrived at LinkedIn, Reed wanted them to immediately see people who were like them. So they would think, this is a place for me. The best way to do that? Show them people they actually know. It's like, oh, June, this person you know, Reed, is here, or John Lilly is here. And you go, oh, well, that's a person that I care about, and I'll connect with them. John Lilly is the former CEO of Mozilla, by the way. He's also the person who introduced Reed and I. Now that will get me into the loop where then you send an invite to John Lilly, John replies, both of you are reactivated because you reactivated John. When you sent him an invite, he came in and accepted it. That acceptance came back to you. Both of those gave you another touch point by which you come back to the site. You can then discover other people you know, and that's how the loop goes where you send out other invitations. That brings you back to the site. This was one of many so-called viral loops on LinkedIn that kept people coming back and bringing their friends over and over. With the viral loops in full swing... LinkedIn's user base started growing exponentially, and so did their need for staff. Here, too, Reed took an unconventional approach. Unlike most founders who are like, you should work at this company forever, 
my view was some people should work at this company forever, and some people should work at this company for some time and then go off and do other things. It's easy to miss just how contrarian this idea is. Most companies treat departed employees like pariahs, not partners. But as we heard in part one of this episode, Reed believes in tours of duty. And at LinkedIn, he found a champion for this idea in his colleague, Kevin Scott. Now, Kevin Scott, who is the head of engineering and the CTO of LinkedIn, who is now the CTO of Microsoft, also had a similar view of the world. Kevin codified this idea in an interview question for new hires. What's the job that you want next that's potentially outside of LinkedIn? And explicitly, it's like, so you'd say, look, we are going to help you get to this new level in your career, this new level in your capabilities. And obviously, there's a mutual interest if it works out that it's at LinkedIn, but in many cases, it won't. And how do we both massively benefit from your being here and massively benefit you? Under Reed's leadership, LinkedIn would join forces with each employee for a specific stretch of time on a mission that made the employee a hero in their own story and the company's. And Reed took the same approach with himself. Most founders cling tightly to the role of CEO. To step down can be seen as failure. But Reed was never preoccupied with holding the title of Grand Poobah. And after four years as CEO, in which LinkedIn became living proof of his theories, Reed was ready for his next tour of duty. And we'll hear all about it just after the break. We'll be back in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning and I said, you know what, I'm going to just like share this with my peers it was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Just before the break, Reed had realized after four years as LinkedIn CEO that he was ready for his next tour of duty. I look at my impact across the scale of humanity, and I want to have multiple things that have had this evolution of human culture. LinkedIn is one of those. LinkedIn is how do we have every individual have a, an ability to take control of their own trajectory, if investing in themselves economically, what their career path looks like. And that is really important to be part of what my story is and how I impact the world. But I also had other things that really mattered to me. A lot of things matter to Reed. He wanted to continue investing and join boards. He wanted to study AI and its potential for humanity. He wanted to play the role of public intellectual. Reed needed the freedom to round out his own story of herodom. As a LinkedIn CEO, you have to be 100% or 150% focused on the organization. And so because I wanted LinkedIn to succeed with this mission, but I also wanted to do these other things, that was part of the reason why I realized was I needed a co-founder who was the CEO. So someone who also goes, this is my life, this is my mission. Notice how Reed was looking for not just a CEO, but a co-founder. I asked him what makes someone a co-founder when they join the company years after it's founded. And it comes down to what makes them feel like a hero. Part of the difference, I think, between a CEO and a co-founder is that a co-founder is trying to build an institution for the ages. I will have failed if the mission that the company is in the world isn't succeeding. 
even if all the metrics and the business and the equity went up and every like we're celebrated in the business press, if we're not actually hitting our mission objectives, then we're failing. A CEO thinks, I'm a hero if we hit our numbers. A co-founder thinks, hitting my numbers isn't enough. Reed was looking for a co-founder, and he knew he couldn't just bring in a COO to report to him. I was like, no, no, I want someone who is going, I win as the hero. People uh, have this drive to be the hero of their own story. And so when you are composing a team, but most especially when you're composing executives or CEOs, they also have to have the ability to play that hero narrative. So Reed brought in Jeff Weiner as CEO. They both knew the transition could be perilous. Organizations don't easily swap out their leaders. CEO transitions are super difficult because they are brain transplants. And they have all of the same potential downsides, also upsides, but of, of a brain transplant. As with any kind of transplant, the new CEO runs the risk of being rejected. So Reed followed a very specific playbook to set Jeff up as the new hero of the business. Jeff learned about it on a phone call with Reed. Before I started, I called him and I said, how would you like this to work? That's Jeff Weiner, by the way. What decisions would you like me to make? What do you want to make? And he said, that's easy. It's your ball. You run with it. You get the whole organization to adjust to Jeff being the CEO. He said that it's really important when bringing somebody in from the outside to make sure that everyone understands that that person will be responsible for the decisions. Reed took it a step further. Reed recognized that people would still come back with muscle memory and go directly to Reed on decisions. And he calls from people saying, oh, X is broken, you need to solve it. He planned about six to eight weeks of time outside of the office over the course of my first 10 weeks at LinkedIn. I was accepting any speaking engagement. It's the only time in my life the Weavers Society of Canada asked me to speak. I would go speak to the Weavers Society of Canada. I would get back. I would see, is it solved or not? People had to reestablish connective tissue with the new guy. More than half the time, the person would get impatient, go solve it with Jeff and other people and say, oh, yeah, we got it solved. Another thing Reed did to make Jeff the hero? Reed took himself out of the hero game. I didn't allow any exceptions. Jeff's the CEO. You got to work for Jeff. I don't think I can overstate the importance of how this was set up. It was like, oh, right, actually, Jeff's great. We can work together on this. This really, really works. But it required that rewiring. Without a foundation like that where you have clarity in terms of leadership and who's responsible for what, it's going to be really challenging to scope. It's not enough to just give someone a cape and a push off the side of a building and then expect them to soar. Reed knew that for Jeff to succeed, he had to be cast in the hero's role. Jeff and LinkedIn did soar. Jeff took the company public in 2011, and Reed continued as board chair for LinkedIn. By the beginning of 2016, LinkedIn revenue was close to $3 billion, but they were still striving. Our aspirations were, how do we become part of the daily work habit for people? In order to play that game, we need to be able to have the public market buy-in the same way you see the public market buy-in for like Amazon or other companies saying, hey, we, we aren't the pure cash printers like a Google or a Microsoft, <laughs> um, but we believe in the future that we're investing in. LinkedIn could have achieved this itself, but with the right partner, they could propel themselves further and faster along their hero's journey. Of course, we all know who they ultimately chose. Microsoft bought LinkedIn in 2016 for $26 billion. The Microsoft mission fits very well with the LinkedIn mission. The Microsoft mission is how do we make organizations much more productive? And that includes the individuals in the organizations. It isn't Microsoft has to change its mission. It isn't LinkedIn has to change its mission. It's that the missions are already collaborators. It was a combination that would allow both Microsoft and LinkedIn to be heroes in their respective missions. Missions that boosted each other's aims. But before LinkedIn took the plunge, they had to look at whether the combination would allow everyone involved to continue on their hero's journey. And then it was like, okay, well, will this work for the rest of the constituencies? Will it work for the shareholders? Will it work for the employees? Will it work for the customers? And it was like, yeah, yeah, we can make that all work. 
On the face of it, the merger worked for everyone. But it's no small task to merge two companies and two cultures with two different heroes, Jeff Weiner for LinkedIn and Satya Nadella for Microsoft. Now, what you'd expect is that Satya would assign one of his loyal, longtime executives to head up the integration. But Satya took a more radical approach. He said to Jeff Weiner, You're the integration person. That's right. We'll make Jeff literally the day one executive who has no experience, no connectivity tissue, no history with how Microsoft does stuff. You're the integration person. That's right. Satya put Jeff, the CEO of the acquired company, in charge of the integration. This kept Jeff and LinkedIn on their hero's journey. For Satya, it was a radical move, one that paid off. So initially when he proposed that, he had skepticism. And then I think six months in, everyone went, yep, that's exactly the right thing. This is winning. This is working. Microsoft is better off for it. It wasn't that you made a decision that was compromising with LinkedIn. You were making that decision for Microsoft, that this was the right result, the right choice for Microsoft being in the right place. And then that all worked. And if you're wondering... Is it typical to put the CEO of the acquired company in charge of the integration? The answer is not at all. I don't know of another case that has done it like that. Like literally, like there should be a business school case on this is how LinkedIn and Microsoft did this because that is super atypical. And by the way, I don't think it should become the typical. I think it's just another tool in the tool chest that is occasionally used. Following the acquisition, Reed took a seat on the Microsoft board, adding it to the portfolio of hero roles he plays across organizations. Ever since he stepped away from the CEO role, Reed gained the freedom to think and act more broadly. He joined boards of nonprofits like Endeavor and Kiva and Teach for America. He became a sought-out mentor, emerging as the wise soul visited by everyone from startups to heads of state. The New Yorker called him the Oracle of Silicon Valley. And of course, he continued investing and earned a reputation as a unicorn spotter. In 2010, the storied venture capital firm Greylock Partners asked Reed to join them as a partner. I asked Reed why he said yes. First, it was the people. These two amazing, you know, kind of innovators, thinkers, actors, agents, venture capitalists, general partners, David Zian and Neil Busri came to me and said, we're re- making Greylock here, and we'd like you to do that with us. At a series of dinners, David and Anil pitched Reed on their vision for Greylock. And Reed, he said things like, Maybe we need to experiment with this. Maybe we need to experiment with this. Maybe we need to experiment with this. Clearly, the ability to experiment was a big draw for Reed. I had a stack of ideas about how to kind of evolve from what I thought of as the Venture 1.0 model to the Venture 2.0 model. And experimentation is what keeps him at Greylock. And I'm still that partner. I'm the person who's most like, here's a bold thing we could try, here's a bold thing we could try, here's a bold thing we can try. But even more than bold innovation, it was Greylock's philosophy that drew Reed. A philosophy that makes the entrepreneur, not the investor, the hero. The culture of Greylock was the kind of culture I'd want. Frequently in Silicon Valley, what's most important is you're a VC at Firm X, and then the founders kind of work for those VCs versus, no, what's most important is the entrepreneurs and the VCs are the partners, not just pure pure capital. We work with you and we're partners at the table, but the heroic success actually comes from the entrepreneurs. And Greylock already had that culture very deeply. Now, in truth, many VC firms say things like, we're here to support you. How can we help? That pitch doesn't always match reality, but I've seen firsthand the way Reed works. And he has one key practice that makes this real. When he's navigating a situation with multiple stakeholders, he always asks, how do I put the entrepreneur first? A contentious deal point? Entrepreneurs first. Strategic move? Entrepreneurs first. It's the first principle that keeps him true to this idea. Let the entrepreneur be the hero in their own story. Which brings me to the podcast you're now listening to. Ever since we launched Masters of Scale, I've had dozens of people ask me, how did you get Reed Hoffman to say yes? And at first I scratched my head. I didn't quite understand the question. To me, it was obvious. Reed said yes because Darren and I asked him to do something we knew he already wanted to do. 
To us, it seemed like the obvious next chapter in Reed's story of herodom. First of all, Reed is passionate about entrepreneurship. The key thing that we all know is that all of the jobs of the future are going to come from new creation. Not just new technology companies, but new businesses, new industries. And that's going to be really important for how do we actually have healthy, thriving societies and good career paths for all of the next generations. My very deep conviction, based on a fair amount of knowledge, is that this is going to have to come through entrepreneurship and through what Endeavor calls high-impact entrepreneurship, e.g. massive-scale organizations. To inspire that next generation of high-impact entrepreneurs, Reed wanted to scale everything he knew about scaling. He was, in fact, already writing his book, Blitzscaling. We believe that podcasting could be the next medium that helped scale his ideas. He still remembers the conversation. You came to me and said, hey, there's this revolution in podcasting and the podcasting, it's becoming a scale medium. How do we enable these industries of the future, the jobs of the future, the companies of the future? And we could all do that with a podcast. So as you can see, we didn't just randomly pitch Reed the idea of doing a podcast. Rather, we brought Reed an idea that we thought might make him a hero in the next chapter of his own story. And it turns out, he thought so too. And I was like, oh, I hadn't really thought about that. But that makes sense. We are aligned on this mission because this ability to get these innovations, these companies, these jobs, these industries, these technologies to scale is precisely how we create massive good in the world. Masters of Scale creates that sense of that community of people all rowing in a similar direction while each all rowing in their own direction in order to make a great new future. A community of people rowing in the same direction while all rowing in their own direction. It's another great metaphor for how to capture the momentum of other people's passions. Find the alignment between their mission and your mission so you're pointing in the same direction. Make them a hero and they'll row you to victory. us to the end of our theory proving in this two-part Reed Hoffman extravaganza. But we have one more treat for you. In every Masters of Scale interview, Reed asked the guests 15 standard questions in our lightning round. Stick around to hear how Reed himself answered the questions. Is there a single poem or passage from literature that you've memorized? And if so, would you share it? <laughs> You'd think I would have prepared for this. If you're intrigued by what goes on behind the scenes at Masters of Scale, maybe you want to work for us at Wait What. We're hiring a head of sales, a managing editor, an executive assistant, and more. Go to waitwhat.com to learn more or email us at hello at mastersofscale.com. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy before we are in full rollout mode, we are at stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. 
For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. And now, without further ado, the lightning round, as asked to Reed Hoffman with just a couple of extra questions thrown in. Reed, I'm sorry, I'm just laughing. I'm so used to these words coming out of your mouth. Settle. Okay, Reed, what's something that's in your pocket besides your phone? My Tesla car key. I can't help thinking as an aside that Masters of Scale does finally play properly on the Tesla. Shout out to Gavin Hall for that. Question two. Artificial intelligence fills you with hope or dread? Pick one. <laughs> uh, drope. Uh, more hope than dread, but the future is what we make it. Is we have this balance between utopia and dystopia, which we – are kind of it's one of it's 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 maybe the most important technology ever maybe along with nuclear synthetic biology and so shaping it to utopia is i think totally possible which is the reason i'm a techno optimist but is not certain so working on it i'm going to submit drope to the next version of the oxford dictionary next question your favorite place to think big it's funny it's not a place for me the best way that i like to think big is on a one-on-one conversation with a close friend and it can be almost anywhere where we can have that conversation. It's such a great answer, Reed, because one of the things we really wanted to capture in this podcast generally was the feeling for the other person when they're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with yes. you. And hopefully our listener, that will resonate with our listeners. Next question. What job would you take if you were out of work tomorrow? I might become a philosopher and write a book on friendship. One object from your childhood that you could never throw away? My original set of fantasy role-playing books from RuneQuest, just for the nostalgia value. We would like a photo of those to place on mastersofscale.com if possible. I think I'd have to go dig them out of the storage bin, so it might be hard to – maybe may take too much time to do, but we'll look. <laughs> the time value. We could certainly get pictures of this is what they look like. Mine may be the more difficult work. The one thing you wish your phone could do? You know, I ask these questions to so many other people and then don't really. Um, I wish my phone could intuit what is the best emotional mood for the environment I'm in and be able to play music to that environment. Love that. Your favorite app? And I, I have to say your favorite app, and we might have to disqualify your investments, but first I'd actually just like to hear what your favorite app is. I mean, that, that like eliminates every app on the phone, I think. <laughs> yeah. Um, the apps I use most often is email. So Microsoft Outlook, the, the, the Apple Mail app, because I'm constantly in communication with people. And then similarly, kind of but boringly, probably the two apps that I most often use are Microsoft OneNote and Evernote. Because it's constantly this thread of ideas and this new up, this update to an idea, the new idea, the update to an idea, the new idea, and that lens of it. There's probably no other apps that I actually use as robustly as those. The book that most influenced you? You know, it's funny. The most X question is a question I'm always really bad at. Like say, oh, the person who most influenced me. Well, there's these 20 people who all influenced me in different ways. These 20 books all influenced me in different ways. The so most influence is challenging. It's probably back to my freshman year in college. I guess what I would say is this, because it, it really opened my mind to how public intellectuals work, is Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman. And there was public discourse in the age of the television. And it was this notion that here is a person who's not writing an academic book, but they're writing a thought book about this medium by which it shapes how we evolve as humanity, as a human society, using these technologies as part of it. And here is a way of thinking about it. And here's a way of thinking about kind of the medium as the message by which you would shape the medium. And that would change the way that we operate as human beings. Because I think probably reading that as a freshman at Stanford is ultimately the thread that leads to all the work that I was doing with LinkedIn and everything else. Because it's the how do you build and shape that medium in a way that shapes us becoming both individual and as a society, our better selves. Love that. Less profoundly, messy desk or clean desk? 
messy desk that my assistant cleans up all the time. Open office or closed office? Open office, but I'm in meetings so often that the door is closed. Is there a single poem or passage from literature that you've memorized? And if so, would you share it? <laughs> You'd think I would have prepared for this. Uh, two. Hillel. If I'm only for myself, what am I? If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? If not now, then when? Oh, well, I get this right. Oh, actually, yeah. I, uh, uh, hold on, let me get my prop. <laughs> I created a sticker of it. I like this one so much. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. T.S. Eliot. Mm, perfect. I made a sticker of that one because I was like, oh, I love this quote. In every, he's a poet, so every word matters. Anyway. Again, on a completely different level, one thing you have to have in your fridge at all times. Avocados. The single greatest embarrassment of your career. Well, we probably talked about it, which is finding out through the paperwork that I was no longer on the board of the company that I founded. And what about the single greatest achievement? I would say I hope that is yet to come. <laughs> but I would say that the making LinkedIn into an enduring institution that goes far beyond my own life. And some of that is hiring Jeff and the executive team. Some of that's how you set up the whole company. But it's the fact that the company will continue to have this massive positive impact on the world far beyond the work of my own hands. Beautiful. Your phone's ringtone, if anything other than the standard iPhone Roomba. <laughs> Always on silent. <laughs> One meeting you look forward to each month. <laughs> There's actually multiple it ranges from Jeff Wiener and I have dinner once a month to a friend of mine that we get together, not regularly, but more or less kind of every monthly cadence to talk about interesting intellectual ideas. Like one of the ones that we've been talking about most recently is how we would rewrite uh, Machiavelli's The Prince for modern Silicon Valley. So anyway, there's a range of them, but there's the, there's a number of, of meetings that I look forward to each month. I I, I must have that version of Machiavelli. Finish it. If we get, well, <laughs> we've taken a bunch of notes, but we haven't written anything yet. So, all right. Your favorite time saving hack? Well, my favorite time saving hack is having an assistant, <laughs> right? Which, uh, without my assistant, my life wouldn't run. You also have like the world's best assistant. Everyone loves Saida. She's so kind and good and smart. Yes. All right, Reed. The final question in the lightning round. Best movie ever. So again, the best X is not a not a thing that I'm 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 totally uh, down with. But my answer within a business context, within an entrepreneurial context, is a movie called The Hudsucker Proxy, which is the Coen Brothers creating a film that is the the fairy tale of entrepreneurship. It's the, you know, young person with an idea comes in to the big city, joins a big company, and figures out a path to transforming people's lives into magic and becoming the CEO of a wondrous and warm organization. And um, the people who've seen it know that the simple code for whether or not you've seen it is to hold up a, a circle, a, a drawing of a circle on a piece of paper and say, you know, for kids. Now, Reed, one of the things that you may not even quite know this about yourself, but in every single lightning round interview you've ever conducted, you've always followed this question with a suggestion that the guest watch Hudsucker Proxy. I do know that. So is there anything else that you want to share with our audience about why they need to go watch it tonight? Look, if you care about entrepreneurship and you care about this creation of new, it is the best fairy tale myth of it. It's the spiritual North Star to entrepreneurship. 
it isn't necessarily the world's perfect movie and all the rest, but it's that. It's the only one that I know of. Beautiful read. This has been such fun. Masters of Scale is a Wait What original. The show is recorded on-site in California and produced at the studio inside SY Partners in New York. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our producers are Chris McLeod, Adam Skuse, Jenny Cataldo, Dan Kedmi, Jordan McLeod, and Ben Manila. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Original music by Allison Leighton Brown. Sound design, mixing, and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Chris Yeh, Bob Safian, Elisa Schreiber, David Sanford, Saida Sepieva, Christina Gonzalez, Sarah Sandman, and Lauren Passell. Visit mastersofscale.com to find a transcript for this episode. And be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter. <laughs>